Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The show is the show, but the people are the story. This is Backstage Stories. Crew are people, too taking you behind the scenes of the live entertainment industry to meet the unsung road warriors who help make the stars shine. Here's Ted Bird. It's episode three of Backstage Stories, Crew Are People Too. I'm Ted Bird, and joined today by the executive producer of Crew Are People Too, Backstage Stories, Gislain Arsenault. That's Gislain Arsenault, not Gislain Dufour which was a small mistake I made <laughs> in our very first episode when I misnamed the guy who actually uh, pays for the podcast and set the whole thing up. Gislain is the owner and the president of Truck and Roll, which puts on this podcast. And good news for Gislain, although this is a podcast and you might be or probably will be listening to it on a day different than the day that we're recording, but on this particular day, there aren't too many trucks in the yard, Gislain, and that's a good sign. Yeah, the last month I've been like, in you know, when we met a few months ago, there was no show in Canada. The U.S. was starting slowly, but now the demand, you know, the governments decide, okay, let's do theater at capacity, which is going to take a few months before you see shows at the ACC, the Bell Center, Scotia, all of the arena. But in the U.S., it's going, it's going full out. And now there's not, you know, we talked about that, if you remember, when we did the first podcast. There's not enough labor now to, for the supply. There's like, you know, trade shows are starting, live shows are starting. And it's, you know, I thought labor would be a big issue, but the trucks are a bigger issue because the supply chain, if everybody knows about supply chain right now, you can't find a truck in Canada, you can't find a truck in the U.S. And if you order a truck today, you have to wait about 14 months. So it's, you know, we're not, like I said, we're still f- trying to figure out what 22 is going to be like as far as touring or any industry. Because if, like I said, the supply chain is off the chart wrong, and it's not only in music, it's everything. So you're, you know, it's going to be, there's a lot of smart people trying to figure it out. And we, you know, and then, like I was just saying, as we were talking, Celine just canceled her shows in Vegas. So we've been working like crazy to, to do the opening in Vegas on, I think it was November 5th. So we've been working for two months, trying to deliver the gear for the first show. And now she has medical reasons. And so all that crew said, okay, what do we do now? Because now we can shift to something else. So it's going to be, like I say, you know, we, we might try to, you know, do the borders are opening soon. We might try to go back to some normal, but it's going to be another a while before we find out what normal is. Our guest today is recently retired and he's a pretty smart guy. Maybe he's got some ideas. Terry DeMonte is a member of the Canadian Broadcast Industry Hall of Fame, inducted in 2021. He is a, a Montreal cultural icon as a longtime radio host, and he's the second best-looking guy on Standing By, the Terry and Ted podcast. Hello, Terry DeMonte. 
Hello, Ted. Very excited you got my name right. I did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I if I can't get your name right after 35 years or however long it's been, I might as well give it up. Thanks for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. I was excited about the invitation because it allows me to speak of a, a very, very brief time in my working career where I was not in radio. So this should be fun. Well, I don't know how many people know this, and I was not aware that you were out of radio for as long as you were. Between 1981 and 84, a full three-year absence from radio to join the music industry. Tell us what spurred that decision and uh, what the job was that you took on. I'm going to try and tell the story so that, you know, people that are listening can relate to it because it was so long ago. But I was doing the afternoon show on a rock station in Winnipeg called 92 City FM. And I had become very good friends with a man named Gary Stratichuk. Gary Stratichuk was the head of a company called Star Command Productions. And Star Command Productions was a partner of Donald K. Donald and Michael Cole and uh, Norman, Norman Perry on the West Coast. And those three gentlemen were the concert mafia back in the 1980s. They owned every avail at every arena in the country from coast to coast to coast. And Gary was a partner whose territory was Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and all the concerts that came through there, Gary was the promoter for. He also was the manager of a band called Streetheart and the Queen City Kids. And I had seen Streetheart play at a theater in Winnipeg shortly after I arrived, and I turned to my girlfriend at the time and I said, these guys are going to be massive stars. I was completely taken with them. Became good friends with him, had many dinners with him, and over the course of, I would say, a year and a half, maybe two-year friendship, I became friends with the band, fascinated with the record business, fascinated with the touring industry, fascinated with the inside machinations of how the music business and concert business worked, and Gary convinced me to come and run his record company. He had a very, very small record company called Pressure Records. And he convinced me to come and be his partner and help him with uh, management of the two main acts, discover new music acts. I spent a lot of time in bars over the course of those two years and become a liaison between the band's and the big record companies we were dealing with. So it was a very, very interesting three years of my life. From the time you were a small child, you knew you wanted to be on the radio. How difficult was the decision to go from radio into the music business? It was very difficult. And I, I was, I must admit, you know, I was 20. I was naive. I was starry-eyed. Anybody will tell you if you stand side stage for a show where 18,000 people are there, you know, once the lights go down and the crowd roars, it's very, very seductive. You can become quite taken with it quite quickly, especially when you're 20 years old. And I'm excited that we're going to talk today about the behind-the-scenes work that goes into it because, Jesus Christ, nobody works harder than a crew backstage and I learned that from the time that I, I began to work with the bands. 
But a long-winded answer, not a surprise. Program directors over the years will say, Jesus, there he goes again. It was a really, really difficult decision because I loved radio so much. I was doing really well. The people in the radio game thought I was crazy. And really, I was going to work for this startup. You know, Streetheart were a successful band. Their first album went gold. The Queen City Kids, their first album went gold. But, you know, they were, Queen City Kids were playing in clubs. Streetheart struggled to draw crowds in the East. But I thought, you know, and Gary convinced me, we're going to grow this company. You're going to see we're going to be the Clive Davis of Canada. We're both going to get rich. And I was like, okay, yeah. (laughs) And we had one great year. The year that I joined, we had a great year. We broke even in the second year. And it all went in the dump, in the toilet. In the third year, we went bankrupt. Shazani, you were nodding your head at some of the names that Terry was uh, rattling off as promoters. You're the same age as us. Do you go back as far as Terry does in the music business? I work with Jeff Perry right now. I've been working for Jeff Perry from Calgary for the last 25 years. So he's, he's still like, he's doing amazing. He's doing like, we will rock you. Let it be a lot of cover bands throughout America. It's a lot of those people you're, you're naming. It's funny because I started in 84 in a business. So by the way, like, you know, you're, we're about the same age. So you're finishing in 84. I'm starting. I'm doing more local with, with Donald K, you know, which we said we should do like stories about Donald, but, you know, imagine Michael Cole and, you know, Bruce Allen and Perry, it, those, all the, the people that pretty much made, you know, live music happen in Canada, those people, and it started probably late seventies at the forum. And then you got the, the eighties, but these people, some of those people are still, you know, making music and their sons or family or children are now in the business too. So it's, it's, you know, it's funny. It's 40 years of music that we're talking about. I'm glad you said that, Ghislaine, because I tell people that all the time. I don't think, for example, in Montreal, Donald K. Donald doesn't get near enough credit. Donald and Norman on the West Coast and uh, Michael Cole. Michael Cole changed the way the concert business was run. But if you look back at the early 1970s, when Donald K. Donald was doing concerts, these guys started the business in Canada. And the reason that people our age have all of these amazing concert memories is because Donald K. Donald took the risk, found the money, guaranteed, you know, Donald will tell you great stories about him sitting across the dinner table with Elton John's manager, John Reed, and going, fuck you, I'm not paying you that kind of money. And John Reed going, well, fuck you then, because Elton's not going to tour your fucking city. And they, they would yell and scream at each other, and they would come to a gentleman's arrangement and shake hands, and, you know, lots and lots of money would get exchanged in order for these acts to, you know, the managers of these acts made sure that the local promoter had to put a lot of money up up front so that these bands would come so that all the trucks that Gisley has and all of the crews get paid for and arrive the night before and all of that stuff, managers of these big, big acts demanded a lot of money up front and then took a portion of the gate. So the reason that 
so many Montrealers and in Toronto, you know, so many Torontonians, all Canadians all across the country have this rich experience with concerts is because of really three or four men who had the vision to bring shows to the country and had the balls to gamble. You know, they gambled a lot of nights on acts and got stuck with a lot of bills and a lot of empty seats. Not every act is Elton John or Aerosmith. You know, there there are nights when, you know, you take a, a risk on Dickie doing the don'ts and you don't do so well. <laughs> that story about Donald Kay and Elton John's manager reminds me, and I'll ask Gislam, I'm putting you on the spot, Gislam, because this could be telling tales out of school. Can you tell the Bruce Allen story? Well, first of all, for, for people who don't know, who is Bruce Allen? Bruce manages right now Michael Buble. He's from Vancouver. I think, you know, a lot of the bands from Vancouver, I think Loverboy, Anne-Marie was with, with Bruce. Like, he, he's an icon in, in the BC area. And like I say, you know, he's been running Michael Buble's career now almost full time. So, Brian Adams also. Yeah. So just, you know, you, you think Vancouver, you think he's a big hitter. So I'm, I'm seriously, I'm working for Bruce for a lot, for at least 10, 15 years and, we're in Toronto, we're having dinner, and we sit, and he looks at everybody, he looks at me, he's like, I don't know you. I said, no, you work for me. I said, yeah, that's a good thing. <laughs> so, so he said, it's a good thing you don't know me. Because you haven't screwed up yet. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of, but it's, it's true. Backstage, sometimes you just do what you do. A lot of our crew, we just, like, you see familiar faces. Some people, like, there's a good story. I, I mean, if I, if you may, I know it's oh, about. And I know it's about Terry today, no, but it's not. It's a freewheeling conversation. It's you know what I was really impressed with Pink on the last tour. Pink had a book of a picture of everybody on tour with their name, and she would learn everybody on production from the truck driver to bus driver catering. She knew everybody. She would walk, and she had her two kids and a nanny. She would walk, and as she walked, they get there in the afternoon she could name everybody on her tour. And you're talking over 100 people. So I'm always impressed with people that know you. It's okay if you don't know us, but some, some talent. I think Pink is an exceptional person because of stuff like that. I have never heard a bad word about her. By the way, while we're talking about Pink, if you're listening to this podcast when you're finished, do yourself a favor and go to, if you have Amazon Prime, and watch the Pink documentary. If you want to know about behind the scenes, the crews, all about Pink and how she deals with people, load in and load out. This Pink documentary is outstanding. And Bruce Allen is to Vancouver what Donald K. Donald is to Montreal in terms of success and fame. And Ghislaine, he goes all the way back to the guests, uh, not the guests who, uh, uh, Backman Turner Overdrive and Loverboy. And one of the, the great stories, Paul Dean from Loverboy told me that, and Randy Backman has told me the story about Bruce Allen's initial agreement with these guys was with a handshake. And there is all bookers, all agents, all building owners will tell you there's no tougher son of a bitch than Bruce Allen when you have to do business with him. And that's because he's fighting for his artists and he protects his artists. The guys in Loverboy all bought their own islands after Bruce Allen took charge of their career. He's a real legendary, legendary guy. 
And I think it's really cool that you're working for him because he's like Elvis in the concert business. Terry, I'll tell you a secret. 30 years later, how do you think I deal with Bruce? A handshake. I've been working with him. We write stuff. We write emails. But at the end of the day, a man of his word. I hear, uh, hear those stories all the time. Freddie Turner from BTO told me at a lunch one day in Winnipeg that he was a little concerned at first because Randy and Bruce had this deal. And Bruce just said to him, listen, you're going to get a weekly salary and you leave the rest to me. And years later, Fred Turner's biggest problem was he didn't have to work anymore. They were involved in commercial real estate and all kinds of investment. Bruce Allen made all of those guys wealthy beyond their wildest dreams because, you know, I mean, they wrote the songs and they did the touring, but Bruce managed the money and managed their careers in such a fashion that, you know, they're wealthy beyond their wildest dreams. And that's rare in the business. You hear more stories about bands that get taken by record companies and bad managers. And I love the fact that Bruce Allen still looks you in the eye, shakes your hand, and says, deal. This is the way we're going to do it. And then he honors that. It's remarkable. And he, he surrounds himself with people like that, too. Like some of the best people, like, you know, Dean Rooney. Dean Rooney's from Brandon, Manitoba. It's funny about the Manitoba connection and music sometimes. Eh? And, and Dean worked for, uh, for Bruce for many years, and he's an amazing person. And I think That's what happened. You know, you're surrounded with, with people like that and also the artists and all that. It becomes, you know, it's an amazing family when it's a good family. I'm sure there's family that are dysfunctional like anything else in, in the world. But when you get into a good family, it's very special. Yeah, especially in that business. You know, there's, there's a lot of money flying around. Ghislaine will tell you, there's a lot of money flying around in that business. You know, whether you're dealing with the lighting guys, the people that, truck and roll the the stuff in and out of the buildings and you know i've been backstage a couple of times when they're doing what they call the settlement at the end of the night and i had to keep myself from going holy shit <laughs> that's a lot of money on the table <laughs> you know because they're, they're doing cash and they're doing cash settlements and the road manager of the band is arguing with the local concert promoter and the local concert promoters guys going I'm not fucking paying for those sandwiches. And, and the road manager of the band is going, you have to pay for those sandwiches. I'm not paying that bill. And there are stacks and stacks of money on the table. And the first time I saw it, I, you know, like I said, I was wise enough to keep my mouth shut, but inside I was going, oh my God. <laughs> so the money disappeared. The cash disappeared now because everybody's tapping or it's all credit. So, but it changed. But The settlement's still there because there's crew, there's the writer, there's catering, there's like, so I'm sure there's still a good conversation, but you were talking about, imagine the money that you're, you're talking about 30 years ago with Helton, like imagine the, the money today because the tickets used to be 50 bucks. The tickets are 300 bucks now. That's true, Gisley. You couldn't stack the money high enough today on a table. I, I never even thought of that. But, you know, my point was with all that money kicking around, There's a lot of shysters around, and it's so rare. It's wonderful to deal with people who are honest and true to their word and look you in the eye. And to answer your question, Ted, I think maybe maybe I've dealt with four people like that in business over the years. 
Yeah, I'm not surprised. Four actually sounds like a pretty high number. So the early 1980s, you're with Streetheart, and I was thinking after I spoke to you uh, the other day and we were setting this thing up, I was thinking about there was a really vibrant Canadian rock scene in the early 1980s. Uh, off the top of my head, you know, I think of Rush, April Wine, Loverboy, Streetheart, Burton Cummings uh, was still churning out hits. Was it a more vibrant scene then than it is now, or was it just that I was at that age then when I was really into rock and roll and I was starting out in Canadian radio and we played a lot of those bands? Well, I think, you know, it could be because it was the era that we came up in. I think it was more vibrant back then. I can't think of too many, quote, arena acts you know, Canadian arena acts. I think right now they're what would be called in the business soft-seater acts, people that can do, you know, 1,000, 2,500, 5,000 a night. You know, the exception to that, I guess, would... I can't even think of an exception, to be honest with you, these days. You know, when you think of the Tea Party and uh, Tom Cochran still traveling and... Um, I can't even, a lot of bands are not not coming, you know, Billy Talent. I think Billy Talent could probably do arenas uh, these days. Nickelback, of course, yeah, big international success too. To your point, Ted, you know, Streetheart, Loverboy, April Wine, Rush, Backman Turner, Overdrive, The Guess Who, you know, The Tragically Hip. I think of the bands that uh, Streetheart would tour with, Streetheart would go on the road with April Wine, or they would go on the road with, you know, one year they went on the road with Aldo Nova when he was big. One year they did a, a tour with two bands out of Toronto called, one band was called the Headpins, the other band was called Toronto, uh, named after the city. Those bands were short-lived successes. But back then, it just it seemed to me that there were more arena nights than soft cedar nights. But maybe you know, maybe I'm leaving a lot of bands off the table, and I apologize if I am. Well, there are still big acts, and Gislain moved some of them, like Celine and Michael Bublé. But the, I was thinking more like a, a rock and roll. Like the early '80s seemed to be a real, a great era for Canadian rock and roll. Yeah, big time. I mean, when I think of, I think back to some of the acts that were starting to record back then, you know, I remember when the first Red Rider record came out, that launched Tom Cochran's career. You know, he really had a heck of a run and at one point was an arena act. And, you know, he wrote a couple of songs that bought him a lot of houses. Back then, there were a lot of, there seemed to be a, a real, I don't know if it was a Canadian renaissance, but, you know, Triumph. Triumph. Those three guys could do three nights in Texas, 20,000 people a night. Rush had already conquered the world in the 1980s. They spent more time on the road in Europe and the United States than they did here. Rush broke at a radio station in Cleveland, and that launched their incredible international run. They were bigger than Zeppelin at one point. So I don't think in terms of those bands, I think in terms of the bands that had to make a living touring across the country, like Streetheart. You know, Streetheart had to go to Drumheller, Brandon, Lethbridge, Saskatoon, Halifax, you know, the Annapolis Valley, Fredericton. These were, when I, when I say they literally toured every nook and cranny of the country, there were a lot of acts that that's the way they made their living. 
you had to go on tour. It's much like today, actually. I think Ghislaine will tell us this. The bands today can't rely on record sales. They've got to get their ass on the road and get their merch on the table and sell concert tickets. That's the way they survive. I call it the treaties of uh, touring. You need truck, tickets, and T-shirt to make money. <laughs> you need a truck on the road, you're going to sell a ticket and a couple T-shirts, and then you can live because the album, any, anybody will tell you, you know, the streaming and all that, they don't make enough money. They don't, eh? So whatever revenue they get from streaming doesn't compare to what they would have received from album sales back in the day. I think it's, I was looking, I was reading something about it and it's, it's like you're, you're talking like 40 to one or something. It's not even close. Like I was involved in, in the record deals that Streetheart signed in the, you know, the, the early 1980s and our royalty for an album with our deal with Capitol Records, I think we were getting a buck 30 an album. So, you know, if Streetheart would sell 100,000 albums, but then, you know, they would deduct money for promo and they deduct money for costs of the cover shoot and deduct money. So there wasn't a lot of money there. And it got to the point where you're actually trying to keep an act alive. And Ghislaine can speak to this better than I can. But when you get to a level like an Aerosmith or a Rush, you're actually you're taking your whole life on the road. I was lucky enough to get backstage to meet Garth Brooks when he played the Bell Center 15, maybe 20 years ago now. And Garth Brooks toured with people who cooked for him. His dressing room was on his rider. His dressing room had to be set up like an apartment. It had a couch. It had, you know, a coffee table and side tables with lamps and a dressing room off the dressing room where he could change and a bathroom where he could go. And you knocked on the door of his, quote, dressing room, and it looked like an apartment. And outside, they had to set up a playroom for the kids that were part of the tour. And where the catering was, the catering was set up so that it looked like a home. And I asked him about it and he said, I'm on the road most of the year. We take home with us everywhere we go. And the logistics of setting that up and getting that from city to city on a nightly basis, it's astonishing when you think of the logistics of moving it all. You know, what I just think of Garth's dressing room. You think of setting that up every single night just the way he wants it, making sure the playroom's set up, making sure the catering is set up. That doesn't even begin to talk about the stage and the lights and the sound, and everything has to be just so. And I used to think, you know, these artists were divas until I understood more about the touring life. And when you understand about the touring life, like Garth said to me, he said, we're never home, so we have to bring home with us. It's the only way we stay sane. He said, that's why I love my crew so much. We rely on them to make this as comfortable as possible so I can do the best show I can. And that, that was a real eye-opener for me. You know, and Ghislaine can speak to the logistics and the, the work that goes into setting that up every night. But it, it's really quite something to see. Yeah, these are 18 hours a day for, for you know, any, any show. Like you say, the average tour will have four to five shows a week, so plus traveling. 
And usually you get in at eight in the morning and you start doing that setup that you're saying, you know, they, they, they want comfort. They want to feel like, you know, yeah, I'm going to be on the road, but you want the, also the artist to be at the best condition before they go on stage. So if you give them comfort and their partner or their kids are around, you want them. And if they feel good, they'll give you that energy. And it's funny, Terry, you were just saying earlier about the, the feed. Like one of my first tour was the Backstreet Boys, if you remember, in the 90s. And I had never felt that noise go through your body. And it, it reminded me probably of the Beatles. You always see the Beatles at the Shea Stadium you know, or whatever stadium it was back then in the 60s. And the noise that went through your body, it's like, wow. And that's, it's almost like it's the energy. You were just like working. So imagine the artists that get that energy also. So the touring part, the crew, like that's, you do it for that too. Because we never really watch the show. We just stand, you know, like you have a, some of the drivers, they get up around nine o'clock at night. So you catch maybe sometime like, you know, a couple of songs here and there. But the, that noise, it's just like a drug almost. I was going to say, it sounds intoxicating. Yeah. Like I said, you, you get, it's, it's communication between production and, and everybody else. It's, you know, making sure it's, it's about discipline. I always say, you know, they, they, they uh, my father is in the military and he used to be on a ship, U.S. ship, U.S. Navy for eight months. And he used to call it a tour. And I always thought there was a relationship between military and music. Because in order to put a show at eight o'clock, you have to have military team. Precision to start at 8 in the morning and be ready at that time. Like, we, we're trying to start here. You know, we're doing a little podcast. It costs like 15 minutes to get the sound ready. So imagine the Bell Center with 22 trucks to make it perfect every day. And so you have 20,000 people that when they sit down, it's perfect. I mean, you need the best people at what they do day in and day out. And believe me, there's problem. There's always problem. There's always something that happened. But it's amazing how the village pulls together. There's egos in touring, like any... Like music, radio, TV, show business, show yeah. business. There's ego, but it's it's funny how everybody can pull together at one point to make sure that you know we give the best show to the people. That's what we like about what we do. Have you ever thought I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Cundell, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Terry, with Streetheart, I guess depending on what part of the country you were in, you would get vastly different crowd sizes, eh? Yeah, it was always interesting to me and still is. You know, Streetheart is still doing what I call the, it's my term, nobody else's, uh, but what I refer to it as the Canadian Summer Fair Circuit. There's a circuit across, especially across the western part of the country, where there are a lot of summer festivals and fairs where guys like Tom Cochran and Burton Cummings and Streetheart and other acts of that nature and that that era they can charge decent money and, and, you know, draw five, six, seven thousand people for a Saturday summer night at an outdoor show in Saskatoon or Brandon or small towns in the interior in BC. When Streetheart was at their peak back in 19, I would say 1982-83, you know, they were selling one of their records sold almost 300,000 units, which in Canada is triple platinum. So, 
in the West, we would, you know, we would book a tour and um, we could book the Winnipeg Arena, the arena in Regina, the arena in Saskatoon, the arena in Edmonton, the arena in Calgary, and the arena in Vancouver. And depending on which way the avails worked, we would move either from Winnipeg West, but then when we went Winnipeg East, the crowds began to get smaller as we move. You know, we do Thunder Bay, and Thunder Bay we could draw about 6,000 people, and then we do Sudbury and draw 4,000, and then we do Sault Ste. Marie, and there'd be 2,200, and then we would go into Toronto and have to do a club, and then we would do Club Montreal in Montreal, or Street Heart toured as a backup act with a lot of acts. They opened for ACDC in the early 80s at the Forum. And then we would do the club circuit in Nova Scotia. So it was weird and tough on the band's ego because, you know, I remember one tour was either 82 or 83. We did 18,000 people at the Coliseum in Edmonton. And on the same tour, they did a club in Toronto where 300 people were there. So it was really weird for them. And we were never able to figure out what the east-west divide was with street art it was a strange thing with the exception of you know a couple of songs the most popular being under my thumb their cover of the stone song seemed to resonate with fans in montreal and toronto but other than that it was a strange thing and i and i know from you know you get to know when you work so closely with the bands you get to know the guys and musicians are interesting people and they are very, very complicated people. And I, I understand it because people in radio are also dopey and full of ego and creative people react strangely to things like that. And it was tough for the guys in the band to come off, as Ghislaine was pointing out, the electricity that goes through your body when 18,000 people are screaming and cheering for an encore. Uh, that's a lot different than 200 people clapping. <laughs> You know, it's it's just it was it was strange for the for the guys in the band. It's interesting you say that because we had Miles Goodwin on the last episode, and I I never knew Miles when April Wine was in at their zenith in the seventies and eighties, and he's now I think he's seventy three years old, and he was so easygoing and so funny and such a great storyteller when he was on with us, and I think you can see it in his music as well. He's mellowed over the years, as I think we all do. You know, we start to recognize our own mortality and we become different people. And uh, I thought it was a really nice conversation we had with Miles. It was really interesting, especially when I think of the stories that I heard of him before. And I think you knew him before I did. But I find that he's a pretty laid back and cool guy. The Streetheart toured with April Wine and often opened for April Wine because there was a time, you know, when April Wine... April Wine was opening for the Stones. After April Wine released Nature of the Beast, that record did really, really well in the United States. And um, I heard the guys, some of the guys in the band referred to it as our private jet days, <laughs> you know, when they toured at the top of their game. Miles was um, a bit of a different cat in those days. I was at Miles, I, I was sit, seated not with Miles, but seated next to Miles at Ziggy's Bar one night in Montreal and said something to him, and he snapped at me, and I was drunk enough to say, what's your fucking problem? 
right, so what what have you got to complain about, Mr. Rockstar, Mr. I thought, why on earth would you be crabby? That being the idiot that I was, and he laughed, and we ended up having a nice conversation that night. It was, um, as you point out, Ted, we were, I, I was young and stupid. He was younger and a little crabbier, and, you know, he was a, a, at a different place in his life. In his book, he talks about his drinking and, and how it nearly cost him everything. And, you know, so I, I met him at a tough time in his life. And, you know, being the dope that I was, you know, you just think, oh, you're a rock star. Everything must be great. <laughs> and it isn't. Now, I asked you uh, when I was speaking to you before we went on, I said, bring some of your backstage stories, Tara, and I haven't even asked you about any of those yet. Are there any personalities, let's start with that, backstage who stand out to you from, whether it's from your days with Streetheart or your days in rock radio? You know, some of my favorite stories are, there was a much easier going way about the business in the 1980s, the early 1980s. There was less control. So I remember one night going to see U2 at the forum and the record guy, the record company guy saying to me, if you want to go backstage and meet the guys afterwards. And I, I went backstage with a couple of people from the radio station and I remember saying, you know, I don't know who's going to come out, the drummer, what's his name, you know, because U2 was, you know, was 1984. They were just getting started. And we were in the visitor's dressing room at the Montreal Forum, and through the door walked Bono and The Edge. And they came in and said, hi, everybody. And Bono went to the beer cooler and cracked a beer, and The Edge did the same. And just started chatting with people, and I ended up sitting on the hockey bench next to The Edge, and we were talking about everything but radio and records. We talked about guitars. We talked about Ireland. And one of the things that I, I learned that night is these guys are craving normalcy. <laughs> the guys that are on tour who are being worshipped every night and people are screaming for their pictures, if you end up sitting next to them and talking to them like a normal person, I was asking them questions about the towns they were from, and he was asking me about what I did in my spare time. And we were talking like sort of interested cats, you know, we're just sort of having a conversation and, and it always sticks out to me because when you think of you two now today first of all they wouldn't do backstage things like that anymore and second of all you couldn't get near them if you could get near them you'd find them to be very nice but in this day and age you i don't think they would meet anybody backstage i was lucky enough to work for you two on the last tour remember they they were actually rehearsing laval at the uh the place place bell oh yeah and of course, it's a hockey game. The Rockets are playing. They say, just now you got to take out 25 trucks tonight, the game, and then bring them back because, you know, we have to stop rehearsal. So, just for one night. So, we make it happen, 20, try to find 25 trucks for 24 hours. And I get there. What changed, I think, Terry's first is security. I think 9 11 changed everything for us coming in and out of a building. We, I used to walk in like a building, like I used to own the place. Now I've got to go to a metal detector. I got to show ID. I've got, if you don't have your backstage pass, you're just not getting in. So that changed a lot. But I was there when they were loading out and it was fun. It was fun because yes, they were like, they, you know, I, I saw Adam Clayton come out in his bathrobe and they were just like talking and Jake Berry, who's still their, their manager, production, production manager is an amazing person. So Jake was like, okay, cause 
you know, the limo was blocking all the trucks and we can't do nothing until they're out. And it's, there's not even a show. We're just doing a rehearsal. But they, they were still, seriously, still the same. They're very nice. They were talking to everybody. They came out. They took the time to talk to their crew and all that. And there was not even a concert that day. It was just rehearsal. So they're still the same like 30 years later. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that, Gisley. They The only thing, as you point out, that's changed is it's for sure post 9-11. And also, as you get to become the kind of stars that they've become, it's more difficult to manage. And I understand that. And I, I love hearing that story that despite all of the things around them that have changed and grown, that they've kept their feet on the ground. And that doesn't surprise me because of the, the kind of people that they were when I, when I first met them. And you, you know this, there, there's nothing to be gained by being an arsehole. I think a lot of young artists get a little bit carried away with themselves. You know, I've been backstage when seeing guys yelling and throwing things and you quickly walk in the other direction. Most professionals don't behave that way. And the, the other thing that I don't know if it still exists anymore is, and I won't mention the bands, but what was stunning to me for the first couple of years that I was in the business and we would go on tour opening up for other acts, you know, Queen City Kids was a band that we had success with and they by and large were opening shows for headliners. And I was always stunned by some of the things that I learned about, for example, backstage passes being treated for sexual favors and there was a particular big British band that toured in the 1980s that I, I happened to be backstage for and during the drum solo the guys all disappeared beneath the stage and it was quite a long drum solo and I expected to see the guys run out from below the stage I thought they would run out and pour water on their heads and get their towels. And I waited and I waited and I said, where are the other guys? What, is there a room under the stage or like, what, what are they doing? And the road manager said to me, they're busy. And he just left it at that. And I found out later that they invited that the crew would spot attractive women in the crowd before the show and invite attractive women to go to the room below the stage so that they could have a little party during the drum solo. <laughs> and I thought, ah, the world, of social me world of social media, that's changed a bit. Yeah, I would imagine that probably doesn't happen much today because like you say, with iPhones and social media, that's not a good idea. Probably doesn't happen anymore. But that's one of my what the hell is going on backstage stories? <laughs> you told me a backstage story once. I'm pretty sure it was you. And again, I, and I, won't, I won't name the artist. And I've heard a couple of these stories where it is announced in the corridor backstage that when so-and-so comes out of their dressing room, you will not look them in the eye. Have you experienced that too, Gislain? Absolutely. Yeah. I was invited by, and this is another era, I was invited by Polygram Records to go see Sue Medley. In Winnipeg, she was opening for Bob fucking Dylan. And I was backstage at, you know, I, I don't know what it's called now. I think it might be called, Gisling, you, you probably know better than I. It was the equivalent to Plaza des Arts in Winnipeg. I think it might be the Burton Cummings Theater now. 
And just an absolutely beautiful area backstage, much like Place des Arts, quite beautiful backstage, very, very comfortable. And I'd seen Sue Medley and was quite taken with her. And I was, you know, I had an all-access pass, so I went backstage and I sat on a couch and I was waiting for the invitation. I knew enough to give her time to freshen up and de-stress from opening for Bob Dylan. And as I was sitting in the in the couch, guy came up to me and said, Move! And I said, excuse me? He said, Move! There's nobody to be here in the hallway when Mr. Dillon is walking down the hall. I said, fuck off. And they actually, they physically moved me. And as they were moving me, they were barking at everybody backstage, security people, catering people. No one is to look at Mr. Dillon as he walks to the stage. I thought to myself, you know what? Go fuck yourself. Like, honest to God. And this was the 1980s. Bob Dylan had been around for a very long time. And, you know, much like my conversation with Miles, I wanted to say, what the fuck is his problem? You're Bob Dylan. Like, what, what is your problem? You're, you know, you're one of the most famous people in the world. You think people are not going to look at you? Anyway. That was quite disappointing to me. So, Terry, imagine working for them. Imagine going on tour with them. No, seriously, it happened to like somebody close to me. Is like, okay, I'm sitting at catering, and the artist sits in front of me, and I'm eating, and I can't look at him. <laughs> What do you do? You just feel like getting up, taking your plate, and going somewhere else because yeah. you're not allowed to talk or look at the person. It's like, seriously? What I would like to do is sitting in front of the artist. I'd like to do the uh, the old show and tell with my food. Nah, <laughs> there. I'm not looking at. I'm not looking at you. Yeah. Well, this is my dime store psychology take on that. I think that's insecurity manifesting itself as arrogance. I don't know how else to explain that. Surely, no one who is secure in themselves would treat other people that way. Well, again, if you, you know, if you look at the examples that go the other way, Gislaine's mentioned both of them now. The guys in U2, what a great story to hear about that time in Laval. I, I remember I drove by the, La, the Laval building a couple of times, and I could see all the trucks parked outside, and I remember thinking to myself, geez, I'd love to get in and see those rehearsals. And I'll mention it again. If you get a chance to see the documentary with Pink, and you see what a, a down-to-earth, normal person she is and how she strives to stay in touch and how deeply appreciative she is for her success. Meeting people like that and experiencing, and I would imagine Gisley doing business with people like that must be very, very gratifying. It is. And it, like you're saying, when people are nice to you, like, you know, we started our business. It's funny, we're talking about the Donald K. If you guys remember Lloyd Bro and the Brunetta sisters and all that, those amazing, you know, Donald did more than just bring concert. He created like amazing job, amazing talent, which 40, 50 years later is still, you know, it's, it's like we're, we're the ripple effect of what Donald did, you know, and sorry, just like he created a, he created an amazing family that is still having repercussions today. Sylvie Brunetta, who's a, dear dear friend of mine is still doing work for live nation 
Deborah Rathwell is, you know, a giant in the industry in New York City. Deborah worked side by side with Donald for years. I'm telling you stuff you already know, but for people who don't know the business, Donald has left quite a legacy in inside the business. Yeah, I think Rick and Ed worked like 40 years in the business, you know, talking about being the local rep. Those people, like, you know, they, it, it, it is, it is a lifetime commitment. The, the hours, like, you know, it, it looks like it's, it's glamorous and sexy, but, you know, 18 hours backstage, which you're still to right now, they wear masks for 18 hours. You know, they're living in a bubble. Like the Buble tour right now, it's, it's like you see people, they, they look like they, they're like, uh, people from in a hospital. They come back with marks around their face and it's like, where, where you been? You know, I've been touring. So even right now, it's, it's, it's harder than it's ever been with the mask. Was one of the first things that astonished me when I went on my first arena tour with Streetheart and, you know, you'd walk into a building and look at the setup and the stage and the lights and everything just before sound check. And then after the show, you know, I'd be in the dressing room and I would come out of the dressing room and the guys were already a quarter way into teardown and the trucks were being loaded. And I remember saying to the road manager, can't they do that tomorrow? Like I was so naive. And they said, well, no, they're going to load it in the truck. And I said, well, do they go to the hotel tonight? He said, no, you idiot. They get on the road and they go to the next, they're on their way to Toronto now. And I said, well, do they sleep when they get? He said, no, they get to Toronto and they start all over again. He said, they'll get to Toronto at like 6.30 and, you know, load in will be at 8.30 and they'll start again. Like, when do these guys sleep? And he said, they don't. You know, you talk about the glamour. And I remember one of the first roadies that I met who was, he, he had to go up the lighting scaffolding. And I asked him what he did. He said to me, so. You wanted to join the fucking circus, eh? Up the trestle he went. For a lot of these guys, that's what they are. They're, it's an interesting, just letting you know this, it's an interesting crowd that loves these jobs, and they love these jobs, and they love being in the circus, and they are odd characters, and nobody works harder than they do. But it's a family. Like I said, you, you give, you know, you sacrifice a lot. Being on the road for months uh, sacrifice a lot of your friends and family. So they, they become your family. I mean, you know, you eat with them, you, you go through, you know, amazing moments, birthdays, you know, like I said, there's, you were talking about the pink. You should look at, uh, the Buble tour 148. If you like documentary like that, Buble as one that he did in England, which was the 148th show that they did. So it, it was about that. And it's funny because Bruce Allen's sons is on that. My son's on that. Friend of mine, Denis Richard. Is, so the kids, so you've got the old guys and the new guys, and they're sleeping on road cases in England on the ferry. And, the, you know, you want to go on the ferry in, in England in December, I mean, the sea will kick your butt, you know. So they're sick. And then it just, it just shows you how much sacrifice. It's a good story about sacrifice about not being, you know, at home for your kid's birthday, your wedding anniversary and all that, all that you miss to entertain people. And, I, you know, everybody around here understands that. 
I'm going to check it out because I'm also a big boob. I think Buble is a really nice man too. I think yeah, uh, he's he's uh, he's funny. Have have you seen those commercials for? Yeah, yeah. And by all accounts, from everybody I've spoken to, feet firmly planted on the ground, real down to earth. And he's gone through some difficult times with his family as well. Uh, I think, Gisela, we talked about this. His boy's good now, right? No, had uh, cancer. I think it was liver cancer a few years back, and he's okay now. So, uh, But that changes everything again. You know, it, it changed him a lot. Well, it also goes to show you that it doesn't. all the money in the world does not preclude you from experiencing some of the tragedies that anyone can experience and some of the adversity. I got a question for you, Ghislaine, because I remember the guys talking about this. Who's got some of the best catering? Oh, the uh, Steve. Steve's with me. Steve, Latitude Forty Five in LA. I mean, I, 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 you mean the band or the actual company? I guess people will relate more to the band. Bands pick certain companies because, like, I remember the crews going, "Oh yeah, I'm going to work for da da da," and they their catering is always amazing. For me, it was Cirque du Soleil. Cirque du Soleil, I think, had the best food. We're going to bring in Steve Collard there. He's on the road uh, a lot with the guy, lead driver, right? If I get that right? Yeah, he's one of the leads, lead drivers or the lead driver for truck and roll. I think, yeah, I saw a lot of uh, companies doing catering for bands. But honestly, for me, it's always been the locals. Local. When there were no catering, local. traveling with the bands. Local food? Yeah, the local, there's always a local crew, a local company that does the catering when you don't have a catering traveling with you on tour. So when you get to, let's say, Montreal, there's the crew that comes and the local crew do their stuff and do their, their food for local. So it's, a lot, it's always a lot better. So you can experience different food. I uh, experienced that when you go on tour and you have a company on tour, you, you'll always come back to the same food. <laughs> so for you, Steve, it's less about the band than where you are, than the location, eh? Yeah, it was most about that, but I'm not really a food guy, though. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember that. I'm really, I'm really simple, but that's what I like the most is experience the local stuff. I'm as big as you, uh, Terry, so I'll tell you. Big top Cirque du Soleil, because those athletes burn so much calories that they have a chef on. The catering doesn't stop at Cirque, and they're big top, so they need to train, and they burn calories a lot. But it's too healthy. They actually have to carb load. There was a mix. It, they're very healthy now, but you said I've been around for like 20 some years. So I remember they had a circuit, the master associate. They used to make the best sauce. Like they got this guy from Europe to make sauce. But Cirque for me, Big Top, Cirque du Soleil at the best. Like they had their own trailer. Like we had two trailers, I think even, because they would turn it into a kitchen. So for me, Cirque, Big Top food, that was like, yeah, like that. It was probably good because they were staying at the same place for like more than a month. So they were probably able to buy the food locally and have time to, you know, to do different stuff. Yeah. So Big Top, that would be my first pick. If you're going to go see Cirque, go to the kitchen at uh, at a Big Top Cirque. Oh, yeah. You could like as just as someone who's going to who's attending the show, you can go to the no, uh, no, no, just Joe It's just for the crew. Oh, really? eh? Okay. well, I have to call you and get you to put in a good word for me. Well, it's good because you used to visit, you know, to plan, you know, to plan move. How was the food on tour back in the day, Ter? It's funny that Steve mentions that because, you know, Street Heart wasn't, Street Heart wasn't big enough to have their own catering company with them. So it, it did depend on, on where you went. And also, the much-talked-about riders were important. 
the things the guys wanted in the dressing room and the things that they wouldn't didn't want to have to eat on a tour. You know, the guys had some guys had dietary restrictions and back then it wasn't as you know, it wasn't like today. Nobody talked about gluten free back in nineteen eighty two. But um it the it depended on where you went. And what I what I have a real strong memories of is most of the great food was out west because in Winnipeg and Saskatchewan, there was a sort of a Ukrainian influence. So there was a lot of, you know, heavy, especially during a winter tour, there was a lot of pierogies and and stuff like that. When you got to Alberta, of course, what they wanted to display was their finesse with their beef. And then in Vancouver, there was a lot of often really, really good Asian food. So touring across the West with Street Heart was fun. I have a good story. I got a driver been working he like with us for 10 years and brian adam calls like oh, you're going brian Ad- i'm not going with brian adam okay why he's vegan so i don't eat vegan <laughs> i need meat <laughs> I, i'm not gonna go vegan for two months you mean he won't let the crew eat meat well the tour was vegan let's that's it's it was pretty vegan so anyway you say i don't want to go on that tour give me a give me a give me a carnivore tour <laughs> Yeah, uh, McCartney is like that. McCartney, McCartney will not. Apparently, when you tour with McCartney, there's no kind of you know the only protein backstage is tofu. It's hard to move those road cases eighteen hours a day on fucking tomatoes. So I understand that. Can you imagine the three of us going vegan for two months? Yeah, let's go. I'm, life's too short. Here's ten thousand pounds of equipment to move. Would you like a salad? Yeah, no kidding. Tara, are you still in touch with uh, with any of the, of the guys from back in the day? And I know that some of them have passed. Kenny Shields, I know the, the lead singer for Street Heart, with whom you were close. He passed away some years ago, did he not? Yeah, yeah, he passed away three years ago. Kenny and I were very, very close. It was an awful, an awful loss. I'm in close contact with Jeff Neal, who's the guitar player, and has become kind of the... Uh, the legacy of Streetheart is in his hands. He's, you know, he's the keeper of the the name, and they've got some new songs coming, apparently. I'm in touch with the guys. I just had a nice Zoom meeting a couple of months ago with the guys in the Queen City Kids, who uh, thankfully are all still with us. And I keep in touch a little bit with some of the people, the road managers, and some of the crew members from back then, but it was such a long time ago. And I'm no longer in touch, haven't been for years with their manager, Gary. That was not a relationship that ended well. So I haven't spoken to him, but there are a lot of there. Some of the people are gone. You know, unfortunately, the I had a really nice friendship with Dean Cameron, who was the president of Capitol Records. He was our artist and repertoire guy when Streetheart were making records for Capitol in the 80s. And we lost him a few years ago. So. A lot of people have um, have left the party, and and some people we've stayed in touch with. A lot of the guys, you know, the guys in in the Queen City Kids. John Donnelly is now an event guy out in British Columbia. Alex Chowaki, who was the main guitar player, he became a commercial real estate giant in Vancouver and now lives on Vancouver Island. And the drummer is an optometrist on Vancouver Island. And Kevin Finn, who was a guitar player and songwriter, he got involved in the movie business in Regina. And they would reunite for 
two or three shows every year. They do a couple of New Year's shows. And it's always fascinating to me. You know, a few years ago, I, I tried to get to the show and I couldn't. The Queen City kids were doing a New Year's event in uh, in Winnipeg for New Year's Eve. And they sold 5,000 tickets. 5,000 people turned up for that show. So a lot of it is, I guess, nostalgia for a, a different time, but also, I think, a tribute to how good they were live. I can't let you go without telling the E.T. story. That's one of my favorite stories of yours, and you've got a bunch of them. Yeah, well, if you're, you're involved in the rock and roll circus, you'll know there are very few days off. And on this particular tour with Streetheart, we had left Winnipeg, and I think we did Winnipeg, Brandon, and then we had a day off in Regina. Because one of the things about organizing a tour is the building of veils. You know, it's really hard to get a, a, you know, the Jets aren't playing in Winnipeg on Tuesday, but somebody's playing in the building in Regina on Thursday. So, you know, the you were forced to take a day off, which managers hated because it costs money. You have to spend extra money on hotels. You got to feed the guys, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, we had this day off in Regina, and I, being a movie buff, I wanted to see E.T. E.T. was this movie, and it was much talked about, and, you know, we had been working and hadn't had a chance to do anything like see a movie, and I mentioned to Kenny that I wanted to see E.T., and he said, when are you going? And I said, well, I'll go this afternoon, and he said, can I come with you? And I said, yeah, of course, and then I went, knocked on his door, and he said, well, now uh, Alan and Dean want to come. And I said, yeah, okay. And then, anyway, we ended up at the theater. There was about eight of us all in a row pretty close to the front of the screen, and it was me and Kenny and I think two, maybe one guy in the band, the guitar roadie, and then roadies. And roadies are, they're tough. They're no-nonsense, tough people, usually with, you know, earrings and tattoos, and they don't have a penchant for showering. They don't have time to comb their hair. <laughs> like, they're, they're tough guys. They're tough guys. And so we're watching this movie, and if you're familiar with the, the movie, at the end of the movie, the premise of the, the movie E.T., I feel stupid even saying this, but it's like a boy and his dog, and... You know, the kid standing in front of the monster saying goodbye. And I cry at the drop of a hat. Uh, like, I, I cry at phone commercials. I open birthday cards and go, that's so nice, thanks. You know, like, I, I just, I'm an easy touch for the tears. So the kid is looking at the monster, and his eyes are filling with tears, and he's saying to E.T., I'll be right here. And the monster is begging the kid to say, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to cry. And I think to myself, I can't, I can't cry in front of the crew. I can't. I can't cry in front of the crew. I'll never live it down. So I begin to pinch the inside of my legs. Like I grab just right by my balls, and I'm pinching my legs like this. And I'm thinking, and meantime, it's getting worse on the screen. They stay, and the kids are hugging the monster, and the kids are crying, and I'm pinching, and I finally can't take it anymore. And you know when you're trying to stifle a cry, and your breath catches, and I ended up doing this. <laughs> and I burst into tears, and Kenny began to cry, 
And then the roadies began to cry. And there was like this rock and roll circus all in the front row going, this is the fucking saddest movie I've ever seen. And leaving the theater, of course, Kenny said, we will not speak of this. (laughs) I said, I get it. I get it. Thanks, Tara. That was really good. That's as well as you've ever told that story, and I've heard it a few times. But I thought it was one of the group. I thought groupies. I thought it was one of the roadies that did the. <laughs> it was you, eh? <laughs> Ted loves that story, and it, and it's a story that obviously sticks with me. If you know anybody who's a roadie, you know they're not criers, right? I've seen roadies drop like hundred pound lights on their toes and go, ah, fuck. <laughs> And you and Mrs. still watch E.T. and still cry, right? Yeah, I I still, to this day, I, it's one of my favorite movies. And to this day, I, I can't, when my, my wife and I were first getting together, she said, have you seen E.T.? I said, uh, yeah. <laughs> and she said, let's watch it. And I said, uh, uh, okay. <laughs> and of course, you know, the both of us were crying at the end. She won't even let me do it. Every once in a while, I'll go. I'll be right here. And she goes, stop it. (laughs) Tara, thanks for doing this. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, I hope I I didn't bore anybody because it was was really great fun. It was a real real pleasure to meet you. Same here. Really, really nice to meet you. I'd I'd love for us to have dinner one day. We probably got some fun stories about the same people. The same families, yes, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I was really, really glad Ted asked me to come aboard today. It was fun. Well, we really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to Backstage Stories. Crew are people, too. Produced and presented by Truck and Roll. Specialists in concert and entertainment transportation. The road is our stage. Visit truckandroll.com. Looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness? Then check out the Natural Man Podcast. Join me, host Mike C, as we explore all areas of human wellness, physical, mental, and emotional. Learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health. Remember, your doctor works for you. Learn biohacks, neurohacks, ways to improve sleep, and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com. Hi, I'm Logan Anderson, host of the Say the Damn Score podcast. On my show, I deep dive into the sports broadcasting business by, you guessed it, talking to sportscasters. The show has featured big names like Bob Costas, Kenny Albert, and Vern Lundquist, as well as many up-and-coming broadcasters who you may not know yet, but you will know soon. Whether you're looking for professional development as a sportscaster, different career paths, or if you just want to be entertained by hearing some of the best storytellers in the world tell their own stories, this podcast is for you. You can subscribe to the podcast on all major podcast platforms, or you can visit our website, saythedamnscore.com.